So I'm sure you're all aware it's Trinity Sunday. You knew that, didn't you? (laughs) It's Trinity Sunday, which is why this particular Bible passage is included in the lectionary, because it mentions the Spirit and the Father and the Christ. So there's not that many places in Scripture that the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned together, and there certainly isn't any formulation of the notion of Trinity And in fact, you might wonder whether the notion of Trinity isn't just the construct of very clever theologians. And uh, I would say unlikely, because it's not a very clever construct. (laughs) In fact, it's a very difficult and clumsy construct. It's kind of like the unavoidable conclusion of any astute observation of what's happening in the scriptures down through history as God has interacted with the people, there seems to be these three persons at work. And we put together this notion of Trinity using language that really isn't adequate to explain something that is actually beyond our capacity to properly understand. But it is a necessary part of Christian theology because the facts of the matter point in this direction even though it's not quite clear how to make very good sense of it all. So let's just think for a moment. The Spirit. Now, you could think of the Spirit just as the wind of God or that part of us that is kind of not our fleshy bits. And Paul certainly makes use of the term Spirit in a number of ways. Sometimes he contrasts it with the flesh, the flesh being the principle of self-serving kind of animal survival instinct, whereas the Spirit is the principle of following God's self-giving ways. We hear this usage in Paul's reflection, the mind set on the flesh is death, or I think um, the version that Anne read was different, but it was that same idea. Uh, Flesh dies. We know that, don't we? Flesh always has died, and it always will. And if that's where you're going to place your confidence and hope, I dare say you're a fool, because it's going to go. By contrast, the things of the Spirit are eternal. They don't die with the flesh. They're all about the life that never fades. But in this passage, St Paul is referring specifically to the Holy Spirit of God, not just Spirit generally, because he says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. And The Holy Spirit of God is kind of like the the life part of the creation, in a sense. There's a notion in which the Spirit, God's Spirit, has been present from the very beginning or from before the very beginning. The earliest creation narratives, that God's Spirit hovers over the tofu v'hofu, which is the nothingness and void, the waters all doing crazy things that aren't controlled. The Spirit was there hovering, getting ready to do something, God breathed the Holy Spirit into the first humans in the garden to make them alive. The Spirit is instrumental in enlivening the humans at the very start. And all the way through the history of the people of God, God's Spirit speaks through the prophets to keep calling people toward that which is life. And it's not just the breath of God, because God's Spirit is not an unintelligent force, like the wind or breath or something like that. You know, human beings are really ingenious. We can harness all sorts of things to our advantage. A sailor can sail across 
the oceans, to the other side of the world, harnessing the wind. Wind that has no intelligence as such, but it has patterns, and the sailor reads the patterns and responds to the patterns with the sail and the direction of the boat, etc. We are so clever, we can turn wind, using a turbine, into electricity. That's what we can do. We can manipulate these things in such a fantastic way because we are so clever. But you cannot manipulate the Spirit of God to get your desired outcome. You cannot lie to God or fool God's Spirit. The Spirit knows us better than we know ourselves. And of course the Holy Spirit does not possess or control people. The Holy Spirit does not use force on people. That's what... uh, evil spirits tend to do. We don't get forced by the Holy Spirit to do things that we don't want or intend to do, but the Holy Spirit works within a person to bring truth to our awareness such that we might clarify our convictions and what's going on in our lives and be liberated to live in accordance with the truth. And this is, the, this is kind of like a sovereign act of an intelligent action inside us, a relational work. It's not a mechanical effect executed by remote extension of the will of a distant deity. It is the person of God relating intimately within us, the Holy Spirit communing with our own spirit. As Paul said, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we know the Holy Spirit's work in us because it's evidenced in the decisions and actions we take that are genuinely self-giving rather than just self-serving. That's the Holy Spirit's work in us. The Father is featured in this passage as well. The Father is the figure that many typically think of when we use the word God, the almighty and utterly other the distant, residing above the heavens. When uh, Yuri Gagarin did uh, the first unmanned uh, manned space flight, uh, Khrushchev slyly commented, Gagarin flew into space and didn't see God. Well, Khrushchev was thinking of the Father when he said that because that's the God that ha- people have in their minds. But what's truly unique about this person, the Father in the Trinity? The Father is a source of identity. It's kind of the overarching nature of the Father allows us to locate ourselves in the Father, as it were. Just as a family name provides identity. My name's David. That's my very personal name. I come from the class of Gore. That's my more general name. That's where I find my identity. If you want to go further, you could say I'm also an Australian, or you could use all sorts of other identifiers, but ultimately the identity that really matters is that I'm a child of the Father. I'm a child of God. And this gives me identity, and identity gives me a profound sense of security. Because people who lack security often feel the need to fight in order to make themselves feel more secure And identity and security are really closely linked, I think. I'll never forget the forum I attended years ago. Uh, I was either in a church or at a synagogue in the city, I can't remember which, but there was a Jewish rabbi and a Christian theologian, and they were discussing the ideas found in the epistles of St. Paul. 
And while I resonated with many of the arguments the theologian, the Christian theologian put forward, the sense of unshakable security that the rabbi had was really compelling. He knew he was a child of God. He was utterly secure in his position. You might even say he was too secure, really, because he was neither persuaded nor intimidated by the ideas that were being presented to him. But that sense of security was really palpable. And identity and security are the building blocks of true freedom. Not the idea of freedom from, which so many people seem to strive for today, freedom from responsibility, freedom from burdens, freedom from the commitments of anyone I don't want to be with or anything like that. But far better than this is being set free toward who we were created to be and Christ now calls us to be. A freedom that grows only from the foundation of security and only in the direction of our identity as God's children. And Paul also refers to the Christ in this passage. He talks about our inheritance in Christ because Jesus bequeathed something really important to us. As he walked around Palestine, he was confident that he was a child of God. He lived in the security of God's gracious love, the gracious love of his Father. And this confidence and security were things that uh, shaped his ministry and which he bequeaths to those who follow him. Our identity as God's children and our security in God's gracious love equip us to serve Jesus. We do not need to create our our identity by going out and doing all sorts of things or separating ourselves from other people or opposing somebody. We don't need to fight for our security. We are the people who have been graciously given these things. I became a follower of Jesus nearly 40 years ago. Can you believe that? Nearly 40 years ago. I was already a successful graphic artist. I was soon running my own studio, making multiple times the earnings of any of my contemporaries at the time. At the tender age of 24 years old, I decided to give that up. I realised then that uh, my decision would have long-term financial implications. While my friends were contemplating mortgages, I was making the decision to sink my considerable savings all the money I'd squirreled away for so long into a theological degree. I did this with the awareness that with the combined wealth of my family, which was not vast, it was still greater than most people in the world would ever know. So I took a calculated risk. My family had enough people in it focused on earning an income, so I focused on something Different, And I did so trusting that if things got really desperate for me, they would have the heart and the resources to ensure that I'd not be left on the streets. It wasn't a fantastic investment plan, but it gave me an incredible sense of security to, to be free to try something. And besides, when I did try to make attempts to squirrel away my own investments, it became clear that I was much better at theology and pastoral care than I was at finance. So all of this is to say that Just a little bit of security can give you enormous amounts of freedom. And I've spoken about the nature of Christ's glory here before. It is such a 
strange thing to us, I think. It's a reinterpretation of glory. Rather than the look-at-me orientation of the world's glory, the vacuous emptiness of creating a spectacle by trying to be spectacular, Jesus has an I am for you approach to glory. He gives his all in love for us. This is the glory we become caught up in as we likewise give our all in love for one another. It's not a glory of treasure later as our reward. Some of you will know that joke about St Peter um, showing in a, a millionaire he lived a lovely life on earth and been quite a good person, he thought. And uh, this millionaire comes, well, probably be a billionaire these days, uh, comes to St Peter and Peter welcomes him in and he says, oh, I'm looking forward to this, you know, uh, heaven's supposed to be even better than on earth and da-da-da and very excited and Peter's taking him down all these gold-lined streets with massive mansions and finally gets to this little tiny house, brand new, but it's a one-bedroom house, doesn't have its own bathroom or anything. And he goes, there you go. And the guy goes, what? That's it? He goes, well, we did the best we could with what you sent on ahead. <laughs> and tied up in that joke is a notion that you do good things now and you'll get a reward later on. But the glory we share in Jesus is a glory that's been so redefined as to point to what's truly eternally rewarding. It's not just life here, but on steroids. There's an inflection, a a change. It's all about our care for one another. Those things that actually don't ever fade and live on beyond our flesh. We don't end up with a bunch of loot at the end as if loot somehow becomes more valuable to us. No, we get into the internal things now, the glory now, as we live into it now. See, each of the three persons of the Trinity offer their own unique aspects of the Godhead. Similar to the way instruments make up an ensemble, you know. Each has their unique attributes. The guitar is not the piano. The piano is not the flute. The flute is not the violin. The violin is not the harmonica. Yet they can be unified in playing something together. They don't even play the same notes. I, I mentioned, forgot to mention the bass. Sorry, thank you, uh, Phil, just chiming in there. <laughs> Each one offers a unique, a unique contribution to the whole. The three persons of the Trinity are each completely divine, just as the guitar, the flute, the violin, the piano, and the harmonica are each completely musical instruments but when they play together, we get a band. And it's a wonderful thing. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I understand everything about the Trinity. Probably from my talk today, you know that I understand very little about the Trinity. But I am convinced enough to believe it is a thing. And it's because the evidence points in that direction. And in a moment, we are going to gather around the Lord's table. Robin's going to lead us through the liturgy. And it is the Father who sent the Son. It is the Son who invites us to join with him at his table. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings this whole reality alive in us. One God relating to us in three persons. Happy Trinity Sunday. Until next year.